Jesus says to his disciples on that reading that was well done by Cameron a moment ago, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And like a lot of things, the disciples don't get it, but beware of. You ever seen a sign that says beware of dog? Right? You're going up to a house, you're going to go knock on that door, and it says, beware of dog. In other words, be cautious, be conscious. There's something that could, uh, could, in, uh, could interact with you in the next few moments. Be very alert. Be aware that something around you could be negative. I went to a house one time. It said, forget the dog, beware of wife. I love that. I love that, right? It's the idea, be aware, and we make it one word so we can say it quicker, beware. And Jesus is looking at his disciples as they are in this boat, beware, because they've recently had some interaction with the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the, 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 the disciples have always respected them. These are revered people, Bible teachers in their culture. They were taught, you, these guys know the law, they help you understand the law, they help you obey the law, and so you revere these people. And, and when you do that, you kind of give them a little more power maybe than they should have because, because some of their teaching can actually go bad. Beware. It's an odd thing and the disciples don't understand what he's saying and you can see they're kind of obtuse at this moment. But what Jesus wants them to know is when you're in their presence and when they're teaching you something, I want you to be very aware there's some dangers. Like leaven is this very in, uh, it's, it's this invisible substance that goes into a mixture and permeates the whole thing. And it's invisible and it's subtle and it's silent, but it makes an impression. And he's not talking to the Pharisees about their own teaching. He's talking to his disciples. You need to regulate and monitor the impression made upon you and the influence upon you from these religious teachers. That scares me because I'm the Pharisee to you, at least one of them. Here I am as a person who's supposed to be teaching this capacity. We have others who are teaching Bible classes. They're in that function too. We have elders, and they're supposed to be doing this too. And you've got to be aware, be aware of the impression because, y'all, we could inadvertently influence you toward something that isn't good. To go back and get some of this, we've got to back up to chapter 15. When this, this setting really starts, this context starts, and here's the first one. Here's the first impression the Pharisees were making that the disciples needed to be aware of. They can elevate tradition over the commands of God. That's one of them. We're in chapter 15 now, first two verses. The Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They do not wash hands when they eat. They don't wash hands. These traditions that he's talking about, these are things that God never said anything about, but they kind of become part of our teaching. And he says the disciples are walking along, and it seems like this is such a big deal to them. And he says to them, you guys, if you're not careful and you're not discerning the difference between a command from God and a tradition, you could get the wrong impression of what God thinks. The word of God lessens, the value of the tradition increases, and all of a sudden you misunderstand God completely. 
So as they're walking along, these Pharisees throw a red flag, right? They blow a whistle, blow a red flag, throw a whistle, no, blow a whistle, throw a red flag, 15 yards, because you haven't washed your hands. Anybody know what the law had to say about hand washing? Nothing. There was nothing in the old law about washing your hands. God didn't seem to care one iota about whether you washed your hands before your meal or not. Now, it might medically be smart. It might hygienically be smart. But God says, this has no bearing whatsoever. I'm not going to put it in my law. But the Pharisees decided they, they think it should be in the law. So let's make a tradition. After all, the priests, when they walked into the holy place... When they walked in the holy place, they had to wash their hands, and we're all holy, and we really all want to really be holy. So let's take that and put it on everybody, and let's put it before every meal. And that makes a sense to us. That might be a good idea, and it might be helpful maybe. But by a few years after that, the people don't know the difference between hand washing as a neat idea maybe and hand washing as an absolute centerpiece of the law of God. And suddenly something God never said anything about becomes a huge deal. Let's talk about tradition for a second. Not all tradition is the same. You've got scripture tradition. This is tradition that is rooted in the word of God and has all sorts of importance to it. Because even Paul calls the gospel a tradition. So the gospel is our tradition. Tradition is anything you keep doing over and over again. Do more than once, and it's a a part of the pattern of your life. And so there's all sorts of traditions. But there are some traditions that are also scripture, and because of that, they are called scripture tradition. We need to keep these. That's why you're here on Sunday morning on the top of this hill, because this is a tradition, but it's not just a tradition. It's a scripture tradition. But there are other traditions as part of this that are called mere tradition. It's just a way of carrying out the other traditions. Whether we meet here on a hillside in this building in the pews, or the youth group is at Cherokee Village in a cabin that they were just sleeping in an hour earlier, probably more like 15 minutes earlier, and now all of a sudden they're worshiping here. They've turned it into a holy place. Is that accurate? That's accurate because this is... This is tradition, mere tradition. What we are doing in here is scripture tradition. Know the difference. It's very important that you do so that you are liberated from from all these other things because here's the thing, it communicates something wrong about God to limit him to a place, to limit him to one location and say this is the only way you can do it. No, no, you've limited God because now when you leave the church building, you can lie or live any way you want to. Wrong again, wrong again. You're taking him with you. So that tradition becomes something that communicates something improperly about God. So a wife tells her husband, you know, we need milk for in the morning. You need to go get some milk. There's a million ways he could go get it. He needs to get the milk because that's what the kids need. But how he gets it, man, that's tradition. He can, uh, he can call Walmart and have them deliver it. Pretty simple. He could walk to Dollar General because I guarantee you wherever you are, there's a Dollar General somewhere. So he could walk to Dollar General. He could go to a gas station. He could, uh, he could go milk a cow from a neighbor. 
I mean, it doesn't really matter what he does. Just get the milk, right? And what, the, the, the scripture commands, we need the milk. But how we get it, that's all a mere tradition. But once you go two or three times the same way, all of a sudden you associate it as the same as the scripture tradition. And all of a sudden we're communicating something wrong about God. It's amazing how that happens. They did it with hand washing. Never told anything about it, and all of a sudden, the, the, these people that follow them think that that's what they have to do, because here's part of the reason. They don't have the law. They don't have a pocket Old Testament. They don't have scrolls at their own house. They're dependent on the teachers to tell them what the Word of God says, and so when they start throwing extras in, the people don't know the difference between their extras and the actual heart of God, and when that happens... They confuse it all. And y'all, I can do the same thing. I can be preaching something that's absolutely scripture tradition and throw in a little extra tradition and you, don't, and you might not dis discern the difference. I need to tell you the difference. I need to be responsible and you need to be aware. You need to be aware yourself of when I might do this. And that's every teacher and that's every one of us. I can tell you that we in churches of Christ have been known to sometimes preach tradition rather than scripture. And we've done some harm. We need to be very careful about this and be responsible to it. So when they ate without hand, washing their hands, they were breaking a tradition, but they weren't breaking the laws of God, but they were acting like, the Pharisees were acting like they were and made the people think that, right? They did this with Sabbath, too. You know, the Sabbath was supposed to be a, delay, a day of delight. You couldn't even make your animals work on the Sabbath. You couldn't make your hired servants work on the Sabbath. Everybody got a free day. And then here come the Pharisees. You can't do this, 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 this. And they had 800 laws about what you couldn't do. And suddenly, they couldn't do anything thinking they might violate something. And they had to sit on their recliner like this and not move three feet. What kind of a Sabbath is that? No wonder they wanted the Sabbath to be over with. It was supposed to be a day of delight, amusement, refreshment. Go toss the football with your son. Don't worry about how far you end up walking take a long walk with your wife in the woods. Enjoy God's nature. That's what you're supposed to do with this day. And the Pharisees handcuffed them. Shame on them. How do we do this? Jesus, first of all, treats this by saying, you guys, you Pharisees, let me show you how you do this. They have this tradition called Corbin. They would put all their money in a special account in the bank and they'd call it Corbin. This is God's. Now, I can use it. It's like a trust fund. It's a Corbin trust. I can use it for what I need, but, but other than that, it goes to God. That's a very holy thing, right? To have, a, to have a bank account called God's money. But as they were doing that, that's a tradition. There's nothing in the Old Testament about that, but they like that, and I was, okay, if that helps you. But all of a sudden, their, their parents need something. Their parents need a walker or a wheelchair or a medication that they can't afford. And there's no Social Security, there's no Medicare. How are they going to get that medication? Well, honoring your parents, that's really largely what it means in the big Ten Commandments, number five. And so mom comes and says, we've got to have this medication. We can't afford it. Can, can you help us? Sorry, sorry, that's in the Corbin Trust Fund. Sorry, mom, can't help you. This is irate to God. You put a tradition 
over number five in the Big Ten? Are you kidding me? This, taking care of your parents, is at the heart of God. It's who he is. It's the very core of our identity as children of God. And you put this stupid tradition of your own, this trumps that? Are you kidding me? How, How many times might we do that? Some kind of tradition trumps something close to the heart of God. Now, it's true. You have to have some mere traditions that carry the Scripture traditions. I mean, you, you can't get around it. I remember hearing stories. This was before my time, so this is a long time ago. You had the table of the Lord's Supper up here. didn't have air conditioning. You'd open up the windows, and there'd be flies. And so this dear sister makes a wonderfully ornate cover for the Lord's Supper. Lays it over those elements. Just, it's beautiful, silky, so that those flies can't stay on the communion bread and fruit of the vine. Oh, and everybody, when you start taking the Lord's Supper, they ceremonially take that thing and just, oh, like a holy shroud of communion. Then they got air conditioning. Close the doors. There's no flies in here. So we don't need to get the cover. Took the cover off and all the people went, (gasps) this is no longer Holy Communion. Y'all, the cover had nothing to do with it. It was a pure expediency. That's the word they use. Expediency. It's, It's a tradition that we associated with Scripture. It's a mere tradition associated with a Scripture tradition that doesn't need to be there. And by the way, we've learned this. We've been forced to learn this in previous years. I do not like these things. Sounds like a tambourine in the Church of Christ. I don't like these things. I mean, it's just... Okay, let's go back in time. I want to give you a story. 2016, we were considering coming over here. You were considering having us, and we were both a little bit uncertain. So, imagine I say to the, to, to the elders, I'll come if you get rid of the communion trays and turn to these things. How many think I'd be here right now? Uh-uh. That's anathema. That's wrong. No, you're a change agent. You liberal, you go somewhere else, somewhere in Nashville's where you belong. Eight years later, we're using the hourglass symbol, right? How did that happen? Because a virus came along and our elders were forced to draw a line of discernment between what is Lord's Supper and what is the mere tradition of how we observe it. The trays are not the Lord's Supper. The tables that are still here are not the Lord's Supper. We were forced to, this is the most important thing, the elements themselves, make sure we have them. So we got rid of the trays and we went to these hourglasses and we still are stuck with these things. But we still have the tables and I haven't figured that one out yet. We're still taking the Lord's Supper. But the tradition of how it was carried along has changed. Because we wanted to keep the essence without being limited, right? I know churches that have only one cup. And it's the Lord's Supper. 
Now, I don't want to go there, but I'm telling you, there's one cup, and it's the Lord's Supper. That's the tradition, right? It's a scripture tradition that has some tradition even built around it, and can you learn the difference? And by the way, there, we had to do this again. Uh, this is just last year when Christmas Eve was a Sunday, and we know how important Christmas Eve is. And so we had no Bible class. We had no evening worship. We just had the 10 o'clock worship. And do you know what we're saying? Bible class is a tradition. Sunday evening is just a tradition. But what's not, a, what's not just a tradition but is a scripture tradition is our worship on Sunday morning. If you can get rid of it, even just one Sunday, you are saying it's just a tradition. Is that true? It is true. And even saying a mere tradition is not saying it doesn't matter. There are some mere traditions we need to keep that are important, that function well, like Bible class. But call it tradition. Make sure we teach it right. And don't confuse people about what's in the heart of God for sure. And as long as we do that, and this hand washing was like that, and I need to be aware when I teach how I do that or I preach how I do that, and, and sometimes I cross the line on this. I'm convinced I do. You need to be alert. You need to be alert to this. This idea that there's certain things that we call so significant that are not to God. Don't misrepresent him to God's people or the world. But there's a second one. You knew there had to be something to make the sermon longer, didn't you? There's a second one about this, and it's in verse 10. It's still the hand-washing thing, the whole lathering up ornamentatiously and washing it off. But verse 10 of chapter 15, he called the people to him. Now the, he, he had offended the, disciple, uh, the, the Pharisees and Sadducees. He called the people to him, and he said to them, Hear and understand, it's not what goes into your mouth from outside, what goes into your physical body that defiles a person. Defiles means becomes sinful or unclean in the eyes of God. God's not worried about a germ getting into your mouth. It's what comes out of the mouth that originated from the inward man that defiles a person. And the disciples came to him and says, you, you offended the Pharisees. Boo-hoo, boo-hoo. Leave them alone, he says, verse 14. And then Peter says, I want you to explain what you said a little more in verse 15. And so Jesus says in verse 16, are you still without understanding? Do you not get this? Can you not think spiritually? Whatever goes in the mouth passes into the stomach. This is just... Simple digestive stuff from your science class. Bad beef doesn't make you become sexually immoral. A germ that gets on your hands and goes into your mouth and causes you a little bit of consternation in your physical, it does nothing to your moral life. It doesn't do anything to the inner man. It's not that. What comes out of the mouth comes from the heart. This defiles a person. Out of the heart comes the evil thoughts and murder and adultery and sexual immorality and theft and false witness and slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands doesn't defile anybody. That's profound. The disciples would have struggled with this royally because so much of the Old Testament is described right here. So much of the Old Testament is about a bunch of ornamental ceremonial laws that do nothing to change the heart. And Jesus is here to change their direction. That would have included surely the food laws, right? 
In fact, Mark's going to say it here in a minute. We're going to refer to it. But the, but, but the, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they love these kinds of traditions, these external things. They have nothing to do with the heart. They love them. They love them because they're visible. They love the fact that they can sit and watch whether you do them or not. I can sit there, and, and what we do today, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm always looking around, who's here and who's not? If you're missing two or three weeks in a row, I just want to be able to communicate with you and say you're missed. But it's not like church, church, uh, uh, church attendance itself is the most important thing. But you know what? I can't tell from your heart whether you're full of envy and jealousy and materialism, but I can tell when you've chosen not to be at church or not. That's one thing that's visible, and that's why we use it as a visible gauge. The Pharisees did too. I can tell whether you lathered up or not. The other thing is it's enforceable. I can look and see you didn't do this, and I can come just like the Pharisees did and say, <coughs> you didn't do this. And the Pharisees love that kind of stuff. And sometimes we as a church can get caught up in this stuff too. But Jesus uses that digestive system lesson to remind us that stuff doesn't automatically affect your inner person. And that's what Jesus is interested in. It's what comes out of the inner person. When I start regulating your life, trying to look at what you're doing, whether you're coming to church or not, that's one thing, but I want to be able to tell and be able to help and encourage people who might be struggling with all kinds of inward sins, but I can't see when you're jealous. I can't see when you're angry and bitter and resentful and unforgiving. I can't see that. It's going to take a little more involvement in your life to feel that thing, right? But, but the, the, this thing, this leaven, this, this one's harder than the other one. This idea of gauging the external and forgetting about the internal, it is hard to regulate. And I'm going to ask you three questions about it, and then we're done. And here's, here's the first one. First one is a question I'm not even going to answer because I don't know the answer to it. If, if it is the case that all that ceremonial law, hand-washing, which is not a law, it's a tradition, food laws is a law, cleansings are a law, if it's true that never had anything to do with the inner man, then why in the world did he put so much of it in the Old Covenant? Why does he care whether you eat pork or catfish or not? What difference, God, does it make whether your people eat pork or beef? It made a big difference. He put a lot of chapters in there. He put a lot of chapters about ceremonial stuff, but if it has nothing to do with transforming the inner person, why so much attention in the old law on it? I don't have an answer to that. The apostles struggled with this too. Listen to Mark when he records this. This is the same conversation we just read. And notice in the parentheses, thus he declared all foods clean. It's true. Jesus, by teaching this, just negated a big old section of the law that they knew about in the first five books. Now, they didn't know it at the time. Mark, when he writes this, is writing 30 years after the fact. I don't think the disciples recognized it at the time, but they came to realize that Jesus just put to death a lot of that ceremonial law. And then Acts 10, Peter and that sheet, and then he goes and he talks to Cornelius. All that stuff's about it too, but even then he didn't get, it didn't really get through his head until Acts 15. 
So why is that in there? And why was so much of the old law about stuff that doesn't touch the heart? That's a good question. I want you to grapple with that and tell me what you think one of these days. But number two, how are we prone to doing this today? How are we prone to majoring in physical, visible, ceremonial things rather than in things that actually reach the inner person of, a, of our lives? How do we invest physical actions with spiritual significance in themselves to where we just worry about the physical and don't pay attention to that inner person? How do we do that? I have to think that we do this sometimes. Invest things with spiritual power when they don't have any power. I can tell you debates over the years that we've done with this are communion trays. Just like that. The trays. There's no spiritual significance to those things. What about our songbooks? Man, we spent lots of money in songbooks all those years making sure there's one in each pew. And now we sing off the wall. That's what they used to say all the time. You're one of those churches that sing off the wall. You know what that means, right? You got the PowerPoint. And this was a real debate for years in God's church. It's like, can you do that? Can you, don't we have to have songbooks? No, you don't have to have songbooks. They don't mean anything. Just get the words somewhere, y'all. Get the words off something. But we made it so significant over there. What about um, a physical Bible? Like giving Bill Gay a hard time for coming up reading off his phone. Does it matter whether it's the written word in a Bible or whether it's off your phone? It doesn't matter, does it? Somebody left early service and said, it doesn't matter as long as it's King James. <laughs> does it matter? It, does, it do, doesn't matter whether you ceremoniously open this Bible and do this ornate thing or whether somebody's just scrolling along. It doesn't matter. Church building, we've already talked about it. doesn't matter. Putting a fish symbol on your car, somehow does that make it a sanctified mobile? I've seen some of you drive. Doesn't do anything for your inner person. <laughs> Wearing a cross. If your phone has our picture directory on it, so what? Doesn't make you a member of heaven, right? Those, those are kind of like physical things that we associate maybe sometimes. We've got to be careful with this because all that stuff is, is mere tradition. Good. Maybe even necessary, but it's mere tradition. And then there's the third question. I think it is the one that leads to everything else. Are there some physical ceremonial things that actually do have spiritual significance to where if you ignored the external, you would miss transformation? Are there some things that are physical but not just We've got to be careful with this because I, I don't want to invest anything with spiritual significance, a physical thing. I don't want to do that. But there are some things that are, y'all. Your body is one of them. Your body is one of them. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit, Paul says. You, there's some places you just can't go. There's some behaviors you, you cannot do. That physical body is physical but not just. Crazy, isn't it? Physically getting yourself up on this hill and experiencing worship. Is that physical? Yep. Is that just physical? For some it is. 
If you just come and you sit through it and check off your box and you go home, that's a physical activity with no inner value or substance at all. I think our attendance board back there could have the number who were physically here and then a number of who were actually changed and transformed. And the numbers wouldn't be the same. You can go through the motions and be no more than Christ-like than when you got here. It's possible to pray every day and never, and, and never actually commune with God and become like Him. But it's also possible to be physically present with God's people and verbally sing these songs and take that unleavened bread that's very physical and put it in your fingers and crush it with your teeth and swallow it, put it into your body, and take that fruit of the vine and actually put it in your mouth and swallow it, and it gives you some kind of spiritual power we cannot measure that takes you from one glory to another, one shade of glory to another. Singing these words can fill you with God's Holy Spirit in greater measure than those who do not. I believe, I know from the scriptures and what Paul is trying to say that when someone presents themselves into the water of immersion because they have a repentant heart and they've bowed their knee of their heart to King Jesus to submit to him, something happens in the moment they go down into that physical substance that's beyond just a ceremony. Something's happening here. However, if you entered that water and you're not repentant, you don't really believe Jesus and you don't really intend to submit to his rule, you're just getting saturated. It's an empty, meaningless ritual. The difference is, what are you aware of? What are you aware of? That physical action is both necessary and effective in producing an actual internal change of transformation. You can't chunk it and just say, well, I'm in it in my heart. No, no, there's something about the physical, but it has to be matched with an awareness of the spiritual within you. Sometimes the difference between a meaningless rite and a totally transformative experience is what you are aware of at that moment. The beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. The difficulty here is that Jesus put the bead on the disciples, not the Pharisees themselves. It would be so easy to say, let's just purge the world of all Pharisees and Sadducees. Let's get the negative, leavening influences all out of the world, and then we won't have to worry about it. But you cannot. You cannot. They're in the church, too. As we gather here, you've heard this, right? As we gather here, God is here. You know this, right? Just nod your head if you believe that. God is here. Jesus is here. The Holy Spirit is here. Satan, too, is here. He's actively involved, skittering around the auditorium right now, trying to distract you from all sorts of things, trying to fill your mind with distracting thoughts so that what happens here doesn't matter at all. He's very active here. 
just as much as God and Jesus is. And if I took a video, I, I don't care to see this myself, if I took a video, it would pan out and it would see, I would see the entire service today, some people were scrolling on their phones, and there was nothing happening here other than that! But it's not the church's responsibility to monitor this. It is yours. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Jesus can't get rid of the Pharisees, but he can equip his disciples to be monitoring the influence of the Pharisees' example. And that's your task. There are some, I know, who are going through these motions. You've been in this pew for an hour or longer. There'll be somebody who can tell me exactly how long that was. You've sat here, and there's not seemingly any difference between you and the person, like, distracted. But something's happened in you. You have communed with your God. You have engaged your spirit and you've been fed spiritually where the Holy Spirit resides. He resides in your inner man. That's where he resides and that's where he makes a connection with his word. And while you've been sitting here engaged in this, you take it into your inner person and you are transformed from one degree of glory to another, Paul says. And you've been doing that in the last hour. So what do we do then? Well, here's what we do. The church needs to plan these things. Mitchell did this today. I mean, he bothers people for three days getting ready for this. I'm serious, and we've got this chart. I mean, this chart that tells us when we go. And when I step away from the mic, you come up here. And, you know, and I love that because we are preparing for this. But listen, we can do all we want to schedule everything we can and give you activities that feed and nourish your soul, but unless you choose to do it, it's all for not for you. We have to do what we were supposed to do. You need to do what you need to do in this. Beware of influences upon us that have us majoring in things that aren't important and missing the things that are and beware of influences that cause us to focus all on the external stuff and we miss the internal. Jesus said this to the disciples while rowing across the lake. Beware of the leaven. And they're like, is it because, is it getting on to us because we didn't have any bread? And Jesus says, guys, I made bread. I miraculously made bread. I can take care of bread. Do you miss my point? Yeah, they missed my, but he got it at the end. Oh, he's saying, be aware of the influence of the Pharisees. And this morning, I just beg you, I think by next Sunday, we need to have these signs all over the building. These beware signs. Beware. Beware. Because the power of what happens here is in your mind. The physical things are important, but unless they're endued with power by your mind. So here's what we're going to do. We've already taken the Lord's Supper. A physical thing, but I hope you drew spiritual power from it. But there might be someone here who, you know what, maybe you've thought for years and years, I need to get my life right, but I'll put it off, put it off, and, and, and there's just something missing in your life. Well, here, here's the thing. Here's another chance you get. But it's, it's going to be a physical thing. We're going to say, if, you, if you're ready to give your life to God and be part of the kingdom, come, come and name the name of Jesus as your Savior. 
Turn away from a life where you call the shots that always leads to sin and instead be transformed by submitting to the immersion in water. There's nothing magical in the water, but when you add your faith to that physical action, something happens. Sins get erased. The Spirit enters your life, and that's what we want to see for you. And those of us who've done that are going to stand and sing, encourage you. We want you to stand, and if you're ready to come, be, come forward. And, and if you've done that before, but you need the prayers of the congregation. These prayers are not magical formulas for getting right with God. They aren't. But maybe you need that, that substance within that physical thing. We're willing to word a prayer for you. If you're ready to respond to God in whatever way you need to, it might require you to physically move. And if it does, now's the time as we stand and as we sing.